Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. news crossing today that Anbang Insurance Group uh, is getting pressured to stop buying so many assets overseas and possibly sell the iconic Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, which it bought for almost $2 billion in 2014. With us to talk about this is Tom Orlick, Chief Asia Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, normally based in Beijing. But he is in New York today in our 1130 studios. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with what's behind the request by China to Anbang and others to reduce overseas investments. And, and sort of, you know, like what, what exactly triggered this? I think the, the lens through, we have, through which we have to see this uh, is a broader attempt by China's policymakers to crack down on financial risk and to crack down on capital outflows. Uh, and Anbang ticks both of those boxes. On financial risk, they're issuing short-term high interest rate investment products to finance illiquid long-term assets. That's a massive asset liability mismatch. On capital outflows, well, they're making a bunch of purchases overseas. Uh, so as China cracks down on these two areas, Anbang and other firms are coming very clearly into the regulator's crosshairs. Tom, can you put this into the context of government policy in China and their Silk Road initiative? I mean, because they seem to be putting a lot of money in overseas development. They just want it in a certain way and under a certain control. I think China's policymakers are firm believers in their own ability to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and that means that they think they can pursue an aggressive outbound investment strategy on the Belt and Road, building infrastructure in Southeast Asia into Central Asia, uh, at the same time as cracking down on what they see um, as the riskier aspects of capital outflows, as was the case with Ambang. So to me, this is this is really compelling. If Anbang does sell the Waldorf Astoria, which it bought uh, just three years ago, what other assets could it sell? And could we see uh, a mass sale uh, among other assets by other companies that are engaging in similar practices? So I think we're still a little bit in the realm of speculation here. Uh, we have uh, a well-sourced story on the Bloomberg terminal on this. We so far do not have confirmation from China's policymakers okay. and Anbang uh, are certainly not confirming that they've been required to sell their overseas assets. Um, if it does come to that, um, then I think we're going to see some reversal in that excitement about real estate prices. Well, that, I mean, that was sort of what I'm getting at. Even if it's, let's say, even if they're not going to confirm that or even if they don't sell, the idea that Chinese companies may avoid some of the big purchases, uh, I'm thinking in particular property uh, purchases uh, in, the, in the New York area, for example, or in London, that changes the dynamic for those markets, no? Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the underlying positives uh, for global real estate markets in the last few years has been this idea that the big Chinese buyer, in the case of the prestige project like Waldorf, um, or the just the middle income Chinese buyer in the case of run of the mill residential property is going to be there with a wad of cash willing to drive up prices. If that story starts to change, clearly there are some important implications. Tom, uh, before you came in, you mentioned that you know you've been in China for about a decade, 
uh, perhaps even longer. What, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you try to dispel from people who just read the headlines or news but actually don't live there and spend time there? I think what people underestimate is the capacity which China's policymakers have uh, to pull policy levers to change the dynamic in the short term. Um, so we it, underestimate the power of the Chinese government. Uh, I think people are right that China's government and China's economy faces some really serious problems in the long term, particularly on the overextension of the banking system and the overborrowing by the corporate sector. Um, what people underestimate is the capacity of China's policymakers to move things around in a way which delays any kind of day of reckoning. Are we seeing any sales of assets overseas on the part of uh, bigger Chinese companies yet? I haven't seen any of that so far. So, so far, there's been absolutely no evidence that this is going on in any way. I think this is the beginning of the story, not the end. Got it. And so what about wealthy individuals? Are they still uh, moving money overseas or is that slowing down a bit? So if we look at the bigger picture on China's capital outflows, the government has really been extraordinarily, extraordinarily successful in stemming the outflow. If you go back to the end of 2016, capital outflows were picking up again. The big fear was that we were going to see a flood of outflows at the start of 2017 and we'd be back to panic mode on China's economy. That hasn't happened. Uh, at the end of last year, we saw the beginnings of a crackdown on corporate and household outflows. These latest stories on Anbang, HNA, Dali and Wanda show an extension of that policy. And if we look at the numbers, China's capital outflows have come right down from $50, $60 billion a month at the end of last year to close to imbalance um, in the latest data. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Uh, Tom Orlick is our chief Asia economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We hear a lot about the souring U.S.-Russia relations, and really underpinning it is the ongoing investigation into President Trump. And here to give us a little bit more color uh, from the Russian perspective and from a deeply knowledgeable and informed uh, place is Richard Kahn, managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, based in New York City, also has offices uh, in Moscow. And uh, Richard, you have a deep background with Russia, with financial dealings of all sorts between Russia and the U.S. US. And I just want to start with, you know, how serious do you think that this is being overblown, the Russia investigation into President Trump? And do you think that uh, it's not fair to say that this is really at the heart of the uh, ongoing conflict between the US and Russia? Uh, I do not think it's being overblown, uh, Lisa. Uh, from the first time I spoke with you roughly a year ago, I highlighted some red flags, uh, mentioning people's names, such as you know, Paul Manafort and Carter Page, folks who uh, I felt uh, were indicative of efforts by the FSB to place people around Trump. And since, and I've, of course, been cautious about stating what I really think may happen in that context. But I think we now have uh, a pretty good picture of what's going on. And those of us who spend time in Russia and are familiar with the FSB tactics really have, I think, very little doubt that uh, there's a tremendous amount of fire here. And uh, there are a variety of criminal uh, statutes that may well have been violated that I'm sure Mueller is looking at right like now. Like what? Uh, I would give several examples. Uh, one would be uh, cyber intrusion, another campaign finance laws, 
false statements to federal agents, foreign agent registration, FCPA, RICO, money laundering, espionage, possible, obstruction of justice, of course. All of these things I can give examples of in terms of how I think they may play out. But one simple one would be, uh, and, uh, well, first, let me just say, during the time period when, when we do not know all of the facts, if there is a fire, let's say, regarding money laundering, the Russians are aware of that, just as they were aware of the meeting in Trump Tower and did not disclose that. During those time periods when they know it but we do not, that's what's called compromat. That puts the Russians in a position of having information that's embarrassing to the president and his team and allows them great leverage. But in the money laundering context, as an example, I'm sure that Mueller is looking at um, a very classic technique used in the high levels of Russian government, uh, which is the movement of capital to real estate markets to clean money, basically by paying high prices for real estate and uh, eventually having the ability to uh, to sell those uh, assets and have the money be, uh, at that point be utilized in Schedule Three countries, meaning countries which are on the screen. Well, uh, this all ties to, to very recent developments because it's clear that Congress doesn't fully trust President Trump in his dealings with Russia, or that could be an interpretation, a popular one, uh, from the sanctions that were uh, by, passed in a bipartisan fashion through Congress uh, that resulted in Russia's retaliation by ejecting the more than 700 uh, diplomats that are in Russia. And then, of course, there's this escalating concern about uh, Russia's interactions with North Korea, with Venezuela. I mean, this is getting very complicated. Uh, with Trump, I mean, how much leverage does he have within the U.S. even to deal with Russia, even if Russia does have compromat on him? Well, the way I think of it, uh, and look, let me first say, we Eurasia advisors, we want to see good relations with Russia. Yeah, that's what we're really about, is trying to build bridges, trying to see business move ahead, resolve problems. But that has to start in a situation where the United States is being represented by people who are trustworthy, and, ha- and both in terms of not having compromat on them, not having been paid, as some of the people around Trump have been, and in addition, being in a position to have the confidence of the population behind you in order to make deals. I actually view Trump right now as the uh, major impediment to better relations with Russia. And I say it that way because I don't think it's possible having Trump in power, given all that we already know about him, and I believe there will be a great deal more that comes out. I don't think he's going to, ever going to be in a position where people in the United States, whether they're in Congress or just the population generally, are going to have the confidence that he's actually acting exclusively in the best interest of the United States without any concern for information that people may have on him or for his own business dealings. And as you were just saying, Lisa, the tentacles of this go far beyond Russia. This this comes into play when you're dealing with relations with China, with Turkey, with Greece. It comes into play when it comes to the undermining of our civil society in the United States, with our, in other words, attacking anyone who is going to be part of the accusations against him, anyone who is essentially pl- playing a prosecutorial role, whether that's the court system, whether it's the media, whether it's uh, individuals such as Mueller, I I think he has made the decision from a fairly early stage because he knew what was out there, that he had to undermine these sources of of attack on him. And I think he's done that in a very broad manner, and it's extremely harmful. So it's a matter that I think that affects all of us 
as he tries to deal with these allegations. Although a lot of people would say that they have been overblown, that there has been no proof that, you know, he is generally moving forward with the consensus of a pretty big core of people uh, who think that he's still doing a good job, despite, you know, some of the the less popular polls. Uh, And they have come out and, you know, he's basically put some pretty respected people in right below him. And they certainly uh, like McMaster, who is absolutely respected broadly. So you could say that, you know, they could act and negotiate to a decent level. Well, look, I I have respect for many people whom he's hired. I I know Rex Tillerson somewhat from having served on a board with him years ago. And I think many people, and I would assume he's in this category, are trying to be helpful in this situation, recognize that there are serious problems with Trump and many in his team and want to be responsible and uh, and are are patriots trying to do the right thing. I'm not sure that's going to be successful for them. And I, I also don't think that at the end of the day, that that is going to be enough to over in any way overcome the uh, uh, the undercurrents that we are now seeing uh, coming out in terms of uh, actual uh, uh, links between Russia and the Trump team. And as I said, I, I think there's going to be a great deal more of that. Well, we look forward to your commentary and your thoughts. Richard Kahn is the managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, speaking about U.S.-Russia relations. Here to tell us what to do with your money is Phil Orlando. He is the chief equity market strategist, group head of macro balanced and growth and income teams at Federated Investors. And he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Phil, thanks very much for being with hey, us. Hey, Pim, thanks for very much for having All right, me on. So uh, let's let's try to just understand exactly where we are in the market right now. And, you know, we've heard these calls that equities are overvalued. Bonds don't return a lot. What are you suggesting to your customers right now? Well, we don't think that stocks are overvalued per se. We're sitting here at about 19 times this year's estimated earnings of $130. But I got to tell you that the earnings are just coming in beautifully. You know, the first quarter was up 15% year over year, best quarter in five years. Second quarter, we're about 60% done. We're up about 10, 11%, another solid quarter. Uh, the journal this morning made a comment that this is the best six month period we've seen in corporate earnings since 2011. Um, and yeah, but how much does that do to the weaker dollar? Well, uh, currencies absolutely headwind, but, but, you know, why do we, huh, why are we going to uh, penalize companies because the dollar's weak and the large cap companies are selling more stuff overseas? That's the environment in which they're dealing with. And and if the earnings were terrible now because of the strong dollar, uh, and, and I were to say, well, we've got to compensate for the strength of the U.S. dollar being a, a headwind as opposed to tailwind, you'd say, no, 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 just, just treat the earnings as they are. That's true. We would say that. But still, you know, I have to say, uh, when you came in here, and we were gonna, we were, we were talking uh, ahead of the segment. You were talking about how you're expecting a three to five percent pullback. Right. How do you think about that, and how do you sort of see that being triggered, given the fact that earnings are coming in fantastically, and that there yep. uh, isn't really anything that seems to shake confidence of investors? So you're in great shape right now with the earnings valuation at 19 times is not that excessive, but earnings season is to end in a couple of weeks, and then. You know, seasonally, we've got this August-September period, which, you know, the the doldrums of the summer tend to lead to corrections. You've had a 20% move in the market since uh, since the election. Uh, Washington can't seem to get out of its own way uh, for reasons that I still don't understand. They keep... 
they keep trying to pound this, you know, round peg of of healthcare into a square hole here, uh, as opposed to pivoting over to something that actually matters, which is to focus on corporate tax reform and infrastructure and repatriation, the things that'll move the needle. So at some point, maybe the market just says, you know what, we're, we're just frustrated as hell with the fact that the, this administration can't can't shoot straight, and and maybe that is what you know triggers a little bit of an air pocket. Well, they might be frustrated, but if you're invested in the S and P 500, you're up more than 10 percent so far this year. Uh, correct on the basis of earnings. That yeah. there's no Trump. Well, you in that- but let's say as an investor, you don't. Do you really care why it goes up? If you're long, you just are happy that you're you know, your trade played out or your investment is well, doing well. All right. So at Federated Investors, we're long-term investors. Right. And the way we see this cycle playing out is we think the S&P, you know, at 2000 or so last uh, election, we thought we had a nice clean run to 3000 looking out into the spring of 2019. So as, as, as we see that 50% move, we have no problems with what's playing out. But we're not the average investor. The average investor is looking at day-to-day, week-to-week stuff. The hedgies are not looking out two or three years. Let me just challenge you there, because when you say average investor, let's just – I understand what you're saying. You know, it's like at the margin, they may set the price on any given day. But as you just described, if you're a long-term investor, if you're looking to make an investment now for three to five years down the road, couldn't you be considered to be like an actual investor as opposed to a speculator? And if we were to get a three, five, or seven percent decline – what would you be buying? Oh, we would absolutely be buyers. And the areas that we have shifted our focus to post-election were those areas that are economically sensitive that we think will will benefit from the improved economy. So technology, financial services, energy, materials, industrials, the, the areas that you know will do better than the the big stable dividend payers. So I want to go back, Phil, to what you were saying about the three to five percent correction that we're entering the doldrums period of the year, and that typically that's a good time for a, a sell-off. Of course, um, that is not enough of a catalyst that people are bored to to trigger a sell-off because otherwise they would have sold off a long time ago. Fair point. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, Russ Kosterich of BlackRock was on Bloomberg Television earlier today, and he was talking about the buildup of leverage at hedge funds and other investors, uh, in particular to buy stocks. And I have to wonder what that means uh, for short-term interest rates. If they rise, that leverage becomes much more expensive. Perhaps you get margin calls uh, or having to post uh, more uh, collateral. And all of a sudden, that could trigger a sell-off. Do you see that as a potential catalyst? If not, what are some of the other potential catalysts? So Russ is a smart guy, and and looking at uh, the leverage of hedge funds is certainly an issue. Uh, As we look at the potential for rising interest rates, uh, we we know on the calendar that that we've got uh, the the Fed, Dr. Yellen, uh, giving a key speech at at Jackson Hole in uh, I guess in about a month or less, little less than a month's time, where we think she's going to lay out you know a, a, a firmer plan in terms of the Fed's unwind of. Uh, you know the early stages of shrinking that four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. We think the Fed kicks off with that uh, definitively at their FOMC meeting in mid September. So, so perhaps somewhere in there, the market has 
the reality of the shrinking of the balance sheet, which is another way of saying that the Fed will continue to to withdraw accommodation from the market. Maybe that is a trigger that 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 gets investors uh, starting to uh, take some chips off the table. So it's really hard to sit here and say definitively that this is the issue that's going to trigger it. Uh, There may be three or four things that the market's nervous about. And given the fact that that you're you're entering sort of a a typically perilous time with the stock market having done phenomenally well, uh, and and maybe we're just going to, you know, nitpick our way to a small correction. Uh, Phil, uh, when we nitpick our way to that small correction, we're going to be doing it with a lot fewer stocks. Do you have any thoughts on this idea that in 1997, we had about 7,500 publicly traded companies? That was in like the Wilshire 5000, yep. right? Now we have about 3,500. That's a decline of 50%. That's just fewer stocks to invest this maybe even growing amount of money. Uh, th- that's an issue. I would think that with a stronger economy, uh, with more business-friendly fiscal policies, uh, we would start to see a wave of IPOs that would bring more, you know, fresh companies into the market. Another concern, to your point, Pim, uh, we were discussing this at our morning meeting this morning, is that in the past, you know, you'll remember this, you're an old guy like me, uh, companies, when the stock price gets to a certain level, would split the stock. Two for one, three for yeah, one. Don't they don't do that right now? No, yet, right. Our, our, our one of our uh, Dan Paris, the the head of our strategic value franchise, was bemoaning the fact that that uh, you know that that McDonald's is trading at I don't know it's north of a hundred bucks was one hundred fifty bucks right now. In, in the old days, you know, uh, companies would say, okay, we want to keep that stock somewhere between thirty and fifty dollars a share, and you would periodically get these two for one, three for one splits. Now. Everybody's working up towards a thousand dollars. You know, Warren Buffett saying we don't need to split the stock. Let's just keep, you know, keep Berkshire Hathaway up at, you know, these stratospheric levels. So that that also creates an issue because the the retail investor per se doesn't really have the ability to buy a hundred one hundred fifty dollars stock. They like to buy stocks that are twenty, thirty, forty, fifty dollars a share. Yeah, so they go to index funds where they can buy them all. Phil Orlando, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to speak with thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. You too. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity, Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Well, he's real. He's here with us today, Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He can be followed on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. All right, P.T. Sweeney, tell us about this uh, combination, Scripps uh, Networks and Discovery. Why are they getting together? You know, I think they're getting together uh, simply to get scale in a consolidating media business that is being disrupted by the likes of uh, the Netflix and Hulus and, you know, all the other types of Internet-enabled uh commerce and, and uh, entertainment. So we saw in the last you know couple of years a lot of consolidation on the distribution side of the business. Uh, we saw AT&T buy DirecTV, uh, Charter Communications buy Time Warner Cable, and now I think we're seeing kind of the flip side, some consolidation on the content side of the media equation. Uh, and this is a deal, Discovery and Scripps, that investors have been speculating on for a long time. It really makes the most uh, strategic sense. You've got two companies that are very good, high-quality uh, c- cable network companies, but, you know, in this relative to the 
uh, Foxes of the world and the uh, Disney's of the world are probably a little bit subscale, and by merging, they can get a little bit of scale to compete against some of these big distributors. Yeah, and they're hoping that people will continue to want to watch people renovate their bedrooms uh, for perpetuity. I want to get a sense from you, Paul. Discovery shares down more than six percent right after the open on this news. Are they overpaying? Um, you know, I don't think they're overpaying, but it's um, what happened this morning. Also, is um, uh, Scripps reported earnings that came in below expectations. They, they they pre-announced their earnings in conjunction with the deal, and they also took down their their guidance for the remainder of the year. So it just highlighted once again that the cable network business, um, you know, isn't quite as good a business as it used to be. And in fact, uh, the cord cutting issues are are impacting all cable networks, including the ones at Scripps uh, and Discovery. Uh, so I think you know. It, in the context of the price tag uh, paid in, in, in light of the uh, reduced estimates for scripts, I think some investors are taking it out on the discovery. But again, it just kind of highlights once, once again the challenges that these companies, no matter how big they're going to get, uh, will continue to face in terms of uh, cord cutting and the ability that and the impact that has us on its advertising revenue and on, on, on its affiliate fee revenue. Well, does that mean that they really haven't taken the opportunity to change the business model at all from just relying on advertising, specifically a lot of advertising from automobile companies? Yeah, the uh, the cable network business historically has been the, the best part of the television advertising uh, story over the last 10 to 20 years as uh, people spend more time with uh, cable networks versus the broadcast networks. But that is essentially played out. Now the story is... Can these cable networks and the broadcast networks, but particularly the the cable networks, how do they get their content to the consumers if the consumers are cutting the cord or maybe never even signing up for pay TV at all? How do they get uh, their content in front of uh, consumers and get paid for it through advertising or affiliate fees? So we, you know, they need to go direct to consumer, uh, much like HBO has gone direct to the consumer with HBO now. Um, and I think they need to be a part of some of the skinny bundles that some of these uh, consumers are signing up for. They need to have a direct-to-consumer solution. So I think one of the expectations is that Discovery and Scripps will pull their content and create a direct-to-consumer uh, kind of brand to go right to the consumer, much like Netflix goes right to the consumer with its content. Well, d- uh, the market might not be that enthusiastic about the uh, price and especially the earnings of Discovery, but uh, stock traders are very happy with the news that uh, SoftBank might purchase charter shares at the highest level ever, uh, up more than 4% so far uh, in trading. Uh, Can you just give us a sense of why SoftBank would want to buy charter? The reason SoftBank would want to buy Charter is because SoftBank also owns Sprint in the United States. And Sprint is a company that is not performing well, that is really challenged from a strategic perspective. It is the fourth of the four wireless carriers in the United States. So it's in a weak strategic position. It's in a relatively weak financial position. And it, Masasiro san believes that by combining with Charter, a much stronger company, a company with a diversified business of uh, video and high-speed data and and landline phone, that this would be a good uh, way to shore up Sprint. But you know what's strange? Okay, so uh, SoftBank tried to get Charter uh, to buy Sprint outright. They said no. So now SoftBank is trying to just buy Charter. Uh, Sprint shares, not up. They are down. Well, That's th- surprising to me. It is a little bit, and I think uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised a little bit that that Charter is up as much as it is because I think the there's a high level of skepticism in the marketplace that Masasan um, can in fact pull off a transaction and acquisition of Charter. Um, you know, if you factor in some type of premium for Charter. 
an acquisition of Charter would approach $200 billion when you include the $65 billion in debt that Charter has. So this is a huge transaction, uh, and it would be very difficult for Masa to pull off from a financial perspective. perspective, even if Charter wanted to sell. And let's remember, when we talk about Charter, once again, we're talking about John Malone. He is a significant shareholder of Charter Communications, and he would have to agree to any deal. And I do not believe that uh, he is looking for an outright sale of Charter. Is he willing to do some type of uh, strategic transaction with Sprint or with Masasan? Very possible. John Malone is the you know, a prolific deal maker. So maybe there's some strat, uh, strategic uh, outcome here, but I don't think an a outright acquisition of Charter is in the cards right now. Well, I mean, that's a, that that's something that I guess they haven't figured out yet because they're trying to make this deal happen. I mean, yeah. I wonder if the technology is uh, up to date. I know it's, you Yeah, Sprint, go. you know, it, it's, you know, I just talked to John Butler, our, our telecom analyst here, and, and he made the comment to me that Sprint, because of its, uh, you know, a weak financial position has not been investing in its uh, network. Paul Sweeney, as always, we love hearing from you. Paul Sweeney, thank you for joining us. He is U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.